You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. Guess what I'm sipping on? What are you sipping on? Tell us. Sipping on some red wine uh, from France. Oh, from France. From Bordeaux. That wouldn't happen to have anything to do with our topic for today, would it? Oh, I think it might have a little bit. Maybe not Bordeaux, but France <laughs> for sure. We're definitely gonna we're gonna take a trip through France. Hey, I'm today. excited. I took some French in uh, in high school. I can't speak it, but I took it. Oh yeah, I've been studying it for a while. You look like no you're, wait, what are you wearing? Is that like a green ribbon? You see this? I saw you adjusting. Yeah, okay, wait, that's a <clears> scarf, <throat> but it's a very thin scarf. This is off of my uh, house robe. Oh, it's the tie for it's your robe. It's the tie around. Yeah, you're so mm-hmm. clever. I'm mm-hmm. going to give you full credit for this one. See, I'm very French today. I'm very French. I have my my striped sweater and I have this uh, a plus. drinking on a French wine, a legitimate French wine. I've never had it before. Wow. I went to the store specifically to get this. It's pretty good. It's weird. I can taste the sin. The sin. The sin. The sin. <laughs> I can taste the sin. I can taste the sin. <laughs> it's evil. Mm, that French, mm. uh, you know, that Parisian water. Parisian water is not good. I also got French bread pizzas. Oh, nice. So you're fully on theme. Do you know who taught me that French water, specifically Parisian water, is not good? Uh, who? Mary-Kate Ashley. <laughs> oh. Passport to Paris. I was going to be like, is this like a Sesame Street thing? Like, no. do they just like no, no. shit on the French? Mary-Kate and Ashley, you know, save the day like they do because their grandfather's an ambassador. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole like segment on the like water treaty. Very cool. To provide clean water to Paris. Anyway, you're going to tell us way more cool stuff. So we're talking about Mary-Kate and (laughs) Ashley today. Again. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I keep finding ways to bring them in. Why are we talking about France? Yeah, why are we talking about France? Christian? We don't begin in France, okay? We're going to get there. All right. So I'm not going to tell you why yet. You got to stick around. All right. That's, That's a little tease. Today, we are covering a little story known as the Green Ribbon. The Green Ribbon. Anybody ever heard of that? I mean, I have. How much do you know about the Green Ribbon? Me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know the gist of the story, and I believe I've read it once upon a time when I was young. Sure. But I don't know anything about the history. I don't know anything about the person that wrote it, the origin of it. You've come to the right place. I know I have, because you're going to tell us. I'm going to tell you all about it, because you're listening to That's Pretty Dark. That's Pretty Dark. I'm Christian. I'm Kaylin. <laughs> I don't ever do well with that cue. I don't know why. This is not our first time doing this. <laughs> Surprisingly. So the Green Ribbon is one of those stories that has lived in the recesses of my mind for forever. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, one of those that you forget about. Yeah. And then somebody just mentions something and it's like it all comes rushing back like a dream you had last night. Yeah, that's how it happened for me with you. When you brought it up, I was like, mm-hmm. wait a second. I know that like yeah. just. So I'm going to start referring to these as from the crypt. Oh. These are memories from the crypt. Nice. Things that we have forgotten about and they just sort of bubble back to the surface eventually. But in this instance, we might as well see this one's from the catacombs. Nice. A little bit of French humor. I was going to say, there's some some French references. It's a French funny. <laughs> if you're French and you're listening, I apologize in advance. <laughs> if you're French and you're listening, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, we wish we were you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm learning your language. I'll visit. We'll be friends. We'll drink wine. Mm. I'm supposed to like chaperone you through Europe, so uh-huh. I'm sure I'll be there yeah. too. But you'll translate for me because I clearly can't learn the language. I'll translate very 
very poorly. Perfect. So this story was published in 1984 in a collection of very, very short stories by Alvin Schwartz called In a Dark, Dark Room and Other Scary Stories. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the title's already like ringing a few bells for mm-hmm. a lot of people. I can see the cover in my mind. We were going to do a book report. Oh, also, this is our first book report. We didn't say that. Oh, yeah. I've been excited for Krishna to do this because this is really where he shines. This is really where I shine. Thanks. We were going to do a book report on the whole thing, all the stories in one go. It was going to be very simple, very silly, but there's so much to this particular story Mm -hmm. and we don't want to leave anything out. And in fact, there is so much here that this is going to be a series. This is going to be a two-parter. Yeah. You guys like Christian series. (laughs) Yeah, based on our uh, Instagram poll. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Um, Like the Origins episodes, we thought that was going to be one episode. It ended up being two. Uh, This time we're going to intentionally split this one in half on purpose. And even if you've never heard the story, I think we're going to bring up a lot of interesting psychology, philosophy stuff. We're going to pontificate. Yeah. We're going to ask a lot of questions. We're not sure we can answer. (laughs) But aren't those our favorite kind of questions? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So, yeah, let's get started. The Green Ribbon. Part one. Part one. This book was published in the I Can Read series, the quote-unquote I Can mm-hmm. Read. I remember the little, like, tag, the little, uh, mm-hmm. it was like a grade level that it would have. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's not, not a grade level. It's like a reading level, I guess. I don't know if that oh, translates oh, right, right. into, like, grades. Mm-hmm. But being in the I Can Read series means it was, you know, for children, children who were learning to read. And this was level Two. Okay. So I, I have the book here in front of me. I had to go grab it. Um, oh, the turning of the page. It sounds so good. There are four levels. My first shared reading. There's the one beginning reading. Two, reading with help, which is this book. Mm-hmm. Three, reading alone. Mm-hmm. Four, advanced reading. So. So it's definitely not said. grade level, like specific. Yeah. I don't know why I thought of it like that. This is the description for level two. Engaging stories, longer sentences, and language play for developing readers. Hmm. The back of the book says, high interest stories for developing readers. It's like, you're learning to read on your own now, so here's a story about a woman whose head falls off. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler. All these stories in this book are very scary. You're kidding. (laughs) And it's scary for adults when you realize how much there is to it. I mean, it's scary anyway. Mm-hmm. It's haunting. Yeah. It's just... It's very disturbing. And I remember reading it as a kid because at my school, there was this one classroom and at the back of it, there was a bookshelf with all these books for children mm-hmm. because it's one of the ones you'd sneak back to the back of the room during free time mm-hmm. and go try to find it and read all the scary stories because you felt like you felt like the teacher didn't know it was there because you're thinking, how is this in my little private Christian school? Yeah. We're not allowed to read anything like this and it's just here? There's no way that she knows this is here. So did you really feel like you were sneaking around when you found it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because wow. it was in the back corner. It wasn't well lit. The teacher couldn't see you from the from her desk oh. <laughs> in the front of the room. So you, <laughs> you felt really were like, hiding. Yeah, you felt like she didn't know it was there. Of course she did. But it just was like a secret little find. And you know what? I think that's exactly what it's meant to do. I think it's meant to entice reading to the point where it's like, this is a forbidden thing that's so exciting and fun. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it gives you that motivation. And the teacher's secretly sitting back going, "Mm, he's reading. That's great. Mm -hmm. Look at that. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the darkest, eeriest things about this particular version of the story and a couple others. This is a story that was intended to be read by children. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, we're all pretty glad that we got to read it as kids, right? 
Yeah, mostly. <laughs> I'm going to leave it tucked away in a corner of the room where my kid can find it and think that they found some, mm -hmm. you know, mysterious dark secret thing, right? Because that's part of the magic. Mm -hmm. Before we get started, we have to thank a listener. Oh, Her name is Melissa. That's right. I forgot. I totally <laughs> forgot, but you're right. Yeah. And she's been one of our listeners from the very first episode. Mm -hmm. um, we had an email from her from the very beginning. So we want to thank her for reaching out and reminding us that this story existed. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Melissa. We appreciate you. You rock. It feels very wintry. feels appropriate for... December. Yeah. Well, there's also that Fleet Foxes song about yes. their heads falling off and like I think of that <laughs> wearing every scarves and time. stuff. Yes. What is that song called? It's like scarves. White Winter it's Hymnal. Like, yes. White Winter Hymnal. I believe. If I'm wrong, I'm going to hate that. No, that's correct. Look it up if you don't know that song. Good band. Mm -hmm. I genuinely thought that this episode would take, you know, 20, 30 minutes. We'd read the story. We'd joke about how it's, you know, pretty dark. But a very, you know, simple, quick Google search told me that there was way more to this. Wow. It's way more involved than I expected. So thanks, Melissa, for taking away so much of my sleep. <laughs> As a gesture of gratitude, I'm going to do my best to take away some of yours in return. We hope we do it justice for you. Um, so if nothing else, Melissa, this story was published in 1984. And you happened to mention in your email that you were an 84 baby. Mm, nice. So this came out the year you were born. Uh, I don't know what that means in the grand scheme of synchronicities. You know how I love those. But whatever it is, just know that you've done this to yourself. <laughs> Our hands are clean. That's right. No blood on these hands, nope. but lots of blood in this story. So get ready. Ooh. I'm pumped. He's sipping his red wine. As I sip my red wine Ooh. from France. <laughs> so, I'm such a nerd. He really is. You guys, he's, I've not seen him this bump for an episode in quite a while. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so Melissa's exact request for everybody listening was, can we talk about the girl with the green ribbon? What the heck? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about it all right. So grab your flashlights, everybody, and hold on to your heads. Oh, Because oh. <laughs> I'm about to tell you what the heck, and it's going to get pretty dark. I'm ready. Alvin Schwartz. I've mentioned him a few times now. We both have in the context of this podcast. And I think one day we'll do solid book reports on the scary stories to tell in the dark eventually. Oh, yeah. There's still plenty there. He was an American author and journalist who wrote more than 50 books throughout his lifetime. Better than me. Better than me. He was particularly interested in folklore with a style that emphasized a lot of humor and wordplay. He's one of the many writers from his generation that seemed to really prize that kind of like wit and mm -hmm. charm. I love that. Uh, alongside Dr. Seuss mm -hmm. and Shel Silverstein. Yes. I was about to say a Shel Silverstein. He fits right into all that just with like horror, <laughs> grotesque, gruesome things. Which is, I mean, yeah. Like the Brothers Grimm before him. Alvin Schwartz was a collector of particularly dark stories that he spent much of his career adapting for children, adding that wit and charm to smooth things over and let mm -hmm. kids know that it's okay to laugh about morbid things, especially when those morbid things are more than a little frightening. Man, he was doing what we're doing so long before we were. Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, again, probably one of the main reasons why we have this podcast, yeah. because it's another example of somebody who made scary stories feel safe mm -hmm. and comfortable. And accessible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you looking for? So. Oh, you got the book. I'm going to read the story real quick. Oh, read it to us, please. Please do. I practiced reading this the other day. <laughs> that sounds about right. It doesn't mean I'm going to do a good job. Oh, definitely not. Once there was a girl named Jenny. She was like all the other girls, except for one thing. She always wore a green ribbon around her neck. Yes. <laughs> there was a boy named Alfred in her class. Alfred liked Jenny. And Jenny liked Alfred. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> sure, it's sweet. <laughs> One day he asked her, Why do you wear that ribbon all the time? 
I cannot tell you, said Jenny. Hmm. But Alfred kept asking, why do you wear it? And Jenny would say, it's not important. (laughs) You gotta trust her, Alfred. I think it's important. (laughs) But Jenny and Alfred grew up and fell in love. One day they got married. Hmm. After their wedding, Alfred said, now that we are married, you must tell me about the green ribbon. You must still wait, said Jenny. Wow. I will tell you when the right time comes. You gotta give her her autonomy, Alfred. It's the only way. Years passed. Alfred and Jenny grew old. One day, Jenny became very sick. The doctor told her she was dying. Jenny called Alfred to her side. Alfred, she said, now I can tell you about the green ribbon. Mm. Untie it, and you will see why I could not tell you before. Slowly and carefully, Alfred untied the ribbon. And Jenny's head fell off. Oh my god. Terrible. That's it. That's all. That's the end. Very short and sweet. And yet, absolutely yep. I certainly terrible. read that as a child. I, I, It may have been a school library, just like you. Like, I don't think I owned it. No, I didn't own it. And he, like to think that, you know, she had him wait their whole life. And he trusted her. Isn't that, isn't that something? That is kind of sweet because this is the only version in which that happens. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only sweet version that exists. As much as you can call a, a story sweet when the woman's head falls off. Yeah. We're going to get really, really into this. But God bless you, Alvin Schwartz, because you made it palatable. Mm-hmm. You really, really made it as decent as possible. Kudos. Because the symbolism here is unreal. Yeah. Which also challenges our definitions of death that we're going to get into. Oh man, we've got a lot to learn today. I hope you guys are as pumped as I am because I am so pumped. He's so So pumped, pumped. you guys. Like, so like. I have to keep stretching it. Like the look on, I haven't mm. seen this look on Christian's face in quite a long time. I'm not easily excitable, Mm -mm. although I'm a very simple man. Not almost not excitable at all, one might say. (laughs) Ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Excite me. Oh, God. Oh, God. So all these stories are based off of older urban legends, little motifs Alvin Schwartz found, collected, and repurposed for children. He did this a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. At the back of this book, there's a section where he explains where these ideas came from. The green ribbon is based on a European folk motif in which a red thread is worn around a person's neck. The thread marks the place where the head was cut off, Mm -hmm. then reattached. Mm -hmm. And how this made it into a book for children, I couldn't tell you. Honestly, I just couldn't. Well, they made the ribbon green. Well, no, okay, yeah, we do get into that symbolism, but that doesn't help. Oh, no. Not to knock my man, Alvin Schwartz. I love this guy a whole lot, but I found this explanation overly simplified Mm -hmm. and in some ways a bit presumptuous. And throughout this episode, I'm going to do my best to explain what I mean by that. Okay. One of the things I noticed in my research is that because there are so many different versions of this motif, a few people online have gotten them sort of mixed up. Mm -hmm. For example, one person's blog post said that Alvin Schwartz's story was called The Velvet Ribbon, Mm -hmm. which is incorrect. The story, The Velvet Ribbon, is a distinct version of the tale told by Anne McGovern, published in her 1970 children's book, Ghostly Fun. I have heard of that. Yeah. And then recorded later that same year for the Scholastic Record, The Haunted House and Other Spooky Poems and Tales. It was also published in a book called that, which I bought a copy of recently. (laughs) I'm shocked. This is the version where, after her husband's continuous pleas to tell him what the ribbon is for, the woman tells him over and over the ominous words, You'll be sorry if I do, so I won't. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And at the end... 
when he has removed the ribbon against her wishes, Mm -hmm. as her head falls to the floor into the moonlight, she wails. I told you you'd be sorry. Oh, man. Yeah, that's rough. As I said, there are many iterations of this tale, but here are a few of the commonalities between most of them, if not all of them. Number one, a woman wears a bit of fabric around her neck, but refuses to explain why. Mm-hmm. Number two, she meets a man who falls in love with her upon sight and wishes to know why she wears this piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. Number three, the man eventually removes the fabric, causing her head to fall off, implying that the only thing keeping her head attached to her body was that piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. So when you lay it all out like that, very simple, certain themes become very obvious. Yes. So I'm going to break that down. Okay. Number one, a woman has a secret. Mm-hmm. Number two, a man who becomes obsessed with her and wishes to learn her secret, eventually gets his way and exposes it. Number three, thus killing his idea of who he thought she was and or effectively killing the relationship. Yes. Or you could even say, in this land of symbolism and metaphor, that her secret is so awful in his eyes that once he learns of it, he actually kills her. Oh my gosh. I hope that's not true. Well, it's been done. Okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> I mean, in real life. I'm, I'm, my wheels are turning here because um, mm-hmm. you know me and the journey that I've been on in the last several years. And like, oh, absolutely. Feminism. Um, like It's more fitting that you would cover this, but I'm going to do my best to present all no, these no, I appreciate details that. for you to churn and, and help me figure out. Like, so you're, the way that you just presented it is essentially by no fault of yours because I do think most of the stories are, but it's almost focused on the male perspective of what they don't know, what they need to know quote unquote, need to know, and then what they find out and how it affects them. That's kind of the perspective. Oh, I have two perspectives from the female perspective and the male perspective. That perspective, it does exist. And I think it's it's very unfair, but I think it's incriminating the man more than you you think. Okay. But the listener knows that I've noted this. (laughs) You have noted this. No, you're definitely on the right track. Okay. You're definitely there because that's where I was too. Mm -hmm. This could simply be a metaphor for the man's inability to come to terms with the fact that his wife has a past that she has chosen not to share with him Mm -hmm. until she finds him worthy of the details. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that she knows he won't be able to come to terms with the information itself. And so she keeps it from him, which drives him insane because he's unable to cope with the lack of information and therefore the lack of control. Mm -hmm. The fact that the woman has something of her own drives him absolutely mad to the point that he's willing to violate her trust and her body to take matters into his own hands to undo the fabric from around her neck, either by untying it, pulling it free, or cutting it. And all the different versions, these are the different things that can happen. Mm -hmm. So there do seem to be, as I said, Two schools of thought Mm -hmm. in regard to the symbolism here. These two different perspectives. One angle is from the female perspective Mm -hmm. and the other is from the male perspective. Yes. Which would you like to hear about first? Oh, man. I don't even know. This is a choose your own adventure. It it feels like a choose your own adventure. I feel too powerful. Um, Tell me the male perspective first. Okay. Okay. Because I think I have a grasp being a female. Sure. I have a bit of a grasp on the female perspective. I kind of like that because we're here to talk about the female perspective. So let's get the male out of the way first. Okay. Okay. The male perspective. (laughs) Man, this is like philosophy, sociology. This is all the good stuff. This has also been described, this type of story, as just another example of, quote unquote, be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. Or curiosity killed the cat. Oh, we're familiar with these, aren't we? Implying that maybe our deepest, darkest curiosities, our 
suspicions mm-hmm. about another person might might his eyebrows are raised his <laughs> eyes are wide might he's emphasizing that folks might be totally justified so when that person says you don't want to know you'll be sorry if i tell you mm-hmm. maybe we ought to just take their word for it yeah this is trust right trust this is trust it's the ultimate trust it is trust i mean alfred trusted her so much but he waited so many years alfred is sweet yeah alfred did as he was told he loved her he's a, he's a good guy he's the only good guy in really wow. any of these versions to be honest with you Man. I love Jenny and Alfred. Yeah, Jenny and Alfred. They're sweet. I got you guys. So what do you think? Is there room for secrets? Say, within a marriage, weighing individualism against trust and the fact that a marriage historically is a union between two people who become Mm -hmm. one. (laughs) Okay, I feel... This is deep. It's very deep. I think that in a patriarchal uh, society, particularly, you know, Christian society, well, there, there are other religions that also play into a lot of patriarchal norms and tropes. Mm-hmm. Throughout history, there has been this trickle-down effect where the male has absolute control in a male-female relationship, partnership. Mm-hmm. And that all stemmed from essentially nothing except for the fact that men wanted to be in control. Um, and so a lot of the principles that we're taught as fact as children, it were like it, it comes from just the whims of a man at one point in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and how they infused that into cultural norms, the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> that emphasis on male control is what created the idea that this is a union. You know, there are no secrets, there is no unknown, I guess. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't ever, in most circles, most places, that does not apply to the man like it does to the woman. Because the man has built-in conventions that say, she can't handle it. She's the weaker vessel. Mm. She won't be able to handle it. You should just handle these other things. You should handle the money. You should handle these issues. But that's not considered a secret Mm -hmm. or an unknown. It's just about control. Yeah. Pretty much entirely. (laughs) And I have a lot of, like deep-seated feelings and opinions on all of that. But Mm -hmm. I think, yes, in a healthy relationship, there should be room to have your own autonomy, to have your own individuality. Like you're still a human person and that exists independent of this relationship that you're in. Mm -hmm. And to expect everything of somebody like that is really violating. And if you trust the person, you'll share what you feel comfortable sharing and vice versa. And if you trust the person, it doesn't matter what you don't know to an extent. Right. Obviously, I think there are ethics behind it. I think there are things that you probably should tell another person um, if you're in a close relationship or whatever. But it just, I don't know. The idea that you you can't have anything for yourself is a patriarchal like norm that I don't believe in. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Because historically, men were the ones who were, well, they used their power and their camaraderie to say that only men could be like educated. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, they, they would gatekeep whatever they wanted to gatekeep. Yeah. But a woman can't have anything of her own. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even vote, couldn't keep money, couldn't keep a job. Yeah, right. You know? Right. But everything that taught a woman about how life's supposed to work was written by a man. Exactly. So when a woman is an individual and he doesn't know something about her, mm-hmm. it's like he can't handle it. Yeah. But do you know why he can't handle it, though? I mean, many reasons and many personality traits and types of people. But I think he can't handle it because he's always been told that he's entitled to it. Right. Always. Mm-hmm. He's been in- told that he's entitled to all of this. The woman belongs to him at a certain point, right? Yeah. It's a property, it's property. thing. Yeah. From their father to their husband. And so it's like he, he has spent his entire life being told that he is entitled to something. Mm-hmm. And totally. I, I don't think that's ethical, but hey. No, for sure. For sure. Sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying like it, it, there's 
we're going to ask many more questions today than we actually answer. It's just themes. It's concepts. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I appreciate that because it's just allowing people to think about, because I mean, I never thought about this. I was Mm -hmm. taught all of this growing up and never questioned it because it was God's way or it made sense in that type of perspective. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, as a man, it's difficult because I, I don't know how much of my life experience is what I've been taught yes. through this system. Yes, and I mean, I, I feel for you and men in general, I do feel for you in that way because you can't necessarily separate it and it's difficult to learn. I don't know how to differentiate. Yeah. yeah. Like what's your personal preference and what is what was yeah. taught to you? It's important to note that the Alfred character, um, not always named Alfred, mm-hmm. he already knows that she won't tell him about this thing. He already knows she has this secret, and yet he pursues her anyway. I guess it's their ego after a while. maybe. Well, maybe their ego tells them like, oh, you know, she'll tell me one day. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get her to tell me one day. Or he just tells himself he doesn't care. And then like later, once the gossamer fades and he realizes that it's, you know, the ribbon he was sort of obsessed with. Mm-hmm. It's the secret. It's the mystery. It's the it factor, you know, the right. edge. Oh, it's yeah. what she's got that other girls don't got. Yep. You know, Mm. in one of the stories, I think the Velvet Ribbon, it says that he can't even look her in the eye anymore. The only part of her he can even look at (laughs) is the Velvet Ribbon around her neck. Yeah. He can't even look at her. Wow. He becomes obsessed with that. It's an, yeah, it's an obsession. Like it's crazy. But it's I think you're right. I think you're exactly right that it's an ego thing. Mm-hmm. He becomes obsessed not with her or with what she could be or the potential. Like a lot of times you'll you'll you know, you're falling in love with somebody and it's that potential that kind of drives you that you the things you don't know but you want to know. Mm-hmm. And then in that scenario, you're realizing it was never that. <laughs> yeah, it was just the ego of I don't know this and I hate that I don't know this. I think a lot of the time, especially if you're going to fall in love with first sight, which, you know, love isn't love. Love is not what we think it is. Love is, it's a chemical imbalance in your body that makes you feel a certain (laughs) way about a certain person or thing. But to fall in love that quickly, Mm -hmm. that's more of an infatuation with the idea of the person, which look at the TV show, you. Oh, yeah. He falls in love with who he thinks the right. person you is. create this idea in your mind, you prop it up and you decide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as you realize that that person's not that, everything fades. And spoiler alert, they never will be. Never. They never are. Never, like ever. It's never going to be exactly what you imagine because that person that you have on the other end of your fantasy is a human with wants, desires, needs, mm-hmm. a whole history and past, a whole complete person. Yeah. And a lot of people kind of lose that in the idea of something or someone else. It's almost like love is an invention. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had further to go with that, so I was like no. backing off. Mm-mm. I mean, it, it. it can be. Yeah. So you want to hear the female perspective now? <laughs> oh, yeah, please hit me now that I've commented all over the <laughs> that place. That was just one side of the coin. Well, I guess we should say masculine and feminine, not male and female. Oh, you're really totally know. correct. Yeah. Let's go with that. I don't that. really know. The, the, the stories are always male and female. So let's just, you know, man and woman. This is for the sake of the story, but yes. I'm, the everything that I'm presenting comes from versions of this story that have been told. Yes. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm philosophizing, I'm throwing uh, hypotheticals at it. But all of the specifics and the, the terminology and the details are coming from the stories themselves. Mm-hmm. So if anybody has an issue with something I'm talking <laughs> it, about. It's a paradigm that, you know, we're covering it based on the Green Ribbon yeah, story. Yeah, I'm covering things that already exist. I'm right. just talking about them. That's it. Here, here. I hope nobody's offended by this, but that's my qualifier. Doing my best. No, I appreciate that. It's a story that we're commenting on. Exactly. Or a, a series of stories, a, a mm-hmm. litany of stories that we're commenting on. This one article suggested that the man's uh, aggressive attempts to remove the fabric from her neck 
is latent sexual assault symbolism. I don't disagree. I read that article. Yeah? Yep. It's one of the more philosophical articles mm-hmm. that I that I read. That was literally the only piece of media that I read about this. That's a good one to read. And again, all these articles are going to be in our show notes. Yes. This all harkens back to something you could probably touch on more than me, the expectations of women in society and marriage, which you've already talked about at this point. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really cover the whole, like, her body is mm-hmm. property as well. But, yeah, yeah, for sure. I have a lot of thoughts on that too. Women have been taught for generations they must submit to their husbands mm-hmm. and obey mm-hmm. and do as they're told. And give whatever they want. And for a very long time, one of the worst discoveries quote-unquote worst discoveries a man could make was that his bride wasn't a virgin. Yep. This has gone back for mm-hmm. a very long time. Mm-hmm. Taken to the extreme, the worst secret could be that a woman is not only not a virgin, but was once a sex worker. Oh, God. Sorry. I'm having, like, visceral reactions to the, like, blatant just mm-hmm. patriarchy. <laughs> like, I know. I know. Trust it. me. There's no, there's no like full articles and things about like a woman's worst fears in a marriage with a husband. Oh, like usually. Cause who cares? That fear <laughs> is usually just that the husband's like a murderous, brutish yes. asshole yeah. and just beats her. Right. Like for men, it's all these things, but specifically that you aren't clean. Quote unquote clean. Quote unquote clean. Yeah. And the man can do whatever he wants and the woman never gets to question it once. Yep. I read in this one article that this motif, this uh, fabric around the neck, which you'll notice, again, I'm wearing I around my it. neck yes. as a male. I really hope your, your head doesn't fall off. Mm. And that comes at the end when I, when I take it off. <laughs> I've read that this motif may have been a cautionary tale about marrying a sex worker. Oh my gosh. So then you find out this, like you said, you find the secret out that you can't handle. It's a big secret, right. That, that's one of the ideas is that it's a big secret <laughs> that she's not telling you because she used to be a sex worker. Oh and God. I'm using sex worker versus a lot of other terms that have been used. Sure. And because sex worker is the correct term because it's work and it's, it's profession. <laughs> exactly. It's a profession. While that is pretty shitty, there may be an explanation for this. Okay. This idea is likely due to the fact that for a very long time in cultures around the world, many, many cultures, a black ribbon around the neck, or as we know it today, a choker, was oftentimes an indicator that a woman was in fact a sex worker. Wow. I had never, I've never heard that. I found that in more than one article, so I've had it now confirmed. Wow. I mean, I wear chokers all the time, so. I mean, sure, no, no. It's very common today, and you should not oh, feel I bad know. about yeah, I know. And wear I mean, your chokers, the 90s, ladies, The please. 90s made it. Men, wear your chokers. <laughs> Who cares? Sex workers and not. It doesn't matter. It's just really funny. That is a very interesting, I, I, wow. I, this whole thing is like exploding in my mind now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but while that small detail is true, I don't know how much of that bled into this ghost story motif necessarily maybe one or two versions definitely not all of them because not only have chokers been around for like a very very long time Mm -hmm. like forever chokers were also in vogue among european royalty yeah and people of power thinking of that like yeah at the same time that chokers were being worn to indicate sex workership oh really Mm mm-hmm so the, it came first with the royal set. It was always amongst royalty and people of power. And so it became, I guess that makes sense. Post-French Revolution, women began wearing chokers. Okay. In France, at least. Maybe another, I don't know all the timelines, but I know that like ancient Egypt and even before then, mm-hmm. women were wearing chokers. Yeah. And they weren't wearing chokers to sure. indicate anything um, like sex that. work. Yeah. So that's, that's more of a modern thing. Huh. But still- I still kind of laugh at it because it's funny 
that so many wires were getting crossed yeah. in Europe at this time. But I mean, that it, it really checks out. Like, it makes so much sense. It was a spit in the face of these people with money. I see. This is like an act of rebellion, more so. It's an act of rebellion, exactly. To wear a choker, because it's representative of the upper crust. And you're you're taking that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just really funny, because then the women who were the more privileged class, and they wore these chokers to show how dignified they were and how mm-hmm. rich they were, all of a sudden, very poor women who they hated right. with every fiber of their being were walking around wearing them too, showing them <laughs> off, going, hey, look at what I got, yeah. you know? Wow. It's this like, and they had to just sort of look in horror. That's just like a middle finger. I kind of like that. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I like it. I think it's funny. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate think it's that. Funny. I'm going to think of it every time I wear a choker now. And I do pretty frequently. I used to a few years ago. Wear your chokers, boys and girls, friends and neighbors. <laughs> wear them proudly. <laughs> friends proudly. and neighbors. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, wear the choker. I'm wearing my choker right now. Sure is. If you want to count it as such. It's a bathrobe tie, but you know, it's close enough. It is what you want it to be. It's a velvet ribbon. (laughs) It's a scarf. It's a a, a black band. It It represents whatever you want it to mean, as we're going to find out. Here we go. As I sip my wine from Bordeaux. I'm very impressed. Yeah, I found it at Rouse's. (laughs) (laughs) So Um, French. Maybe Cajun French, but you know. It actually is. It's from Louisiana. Yeah. So. The origins of this story are unknown. Yes. This motif. We don't really know where it came from or who told it first. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many intertwined stories. They go back so far. But we do have a general idea of the time period in which it probably originated. Okay. And the events that led to its invention. Most sources say the original version of this story, although unknown, is undoubtedly French. Hmm. People are sure of the French origin. We're pretty certain. And that, you feebs, <laughs> brings us to our brief, yet macabre, walk through the reign of terror during the French Revolution. Here we go. And up the steps toward Madame la Guillotine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start singing songs from the musical The Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, yeah? It was based on the French Revolution. You can just ignore me. Sounds like we should cover that one day. It's pretty great. You've mentioned that to me before, and I have never seen it. Oh, man. It's a movie. Like, there's a non-musical film, like, mm-hmm. like I don't know, from the 70s or something, 80s. But it's also a musical that I very much enjoy. Nice. You'll have to educate me, for sure. we Will do. We'll drink some French wine from Bordeaux. Hey, and we'll- yeah. We'll discuss. (laughs) The earliest written version of this story, as far as we know, is The Adventure of the German Student by Washington Irving, Mm -hmm. who is one of my favorite authors. You may have heard of his most famous story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is not his one and only foray into the headless ghost character. No, he seems to be obsessed. Yeah, he has a a few, actually. Did he witness a beheading or something? I don't know if he did specifically, but he's another one of those old collectors of old stories. Yeah. And that just was his niche. He was like, this is where I live. He was into it. Yeah. Okay. He loved that old gothic kind of horror story. So he was just sort of a connoisseur of headless <laughs> ghosts. There's one in the Bible, too. A headless character in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Please explain. Absalom or what's his name? He's I, I remember the story, but he's like running through the forest on a horse and his hair gets tangled in the tree. Oh, yeah. It decapitates him. Mm-hmm. Yes, his head comes off. Yes. Yeah. Is that his name? I can't remember if it's Absalom. That's I don't know what his wrong, name is, but I know that story. It's been a while story. since my Bible trivia days. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. We'll have to cover that one day. Yeah. And it's, I mean, they go back so far. Like it's, they I feel do. like it's a very deep, like, fear in the human psyche. Losing your head. Losing your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This story, The Adventure of the German Student, is set in Paris 
during the French Revolution. The main character in this telling, the German student, mm -hmm. he meets a female character one night as she's sitting at the, you know, on the bottom step of the guillotine platform and it's raining and there's lightning and she's weeping and dramatic and he basically falls in love with her immediately. He's smitten for reasons I won't get into because that's getting way too far into the story that we're not covering, mm -hmm. but he invites her back to his apartment. Uh, to get her out of the rain, quote unquote. <laughs> and once he has her in the proper lighting, he can see that she's wearing a black band around her neck. But he doesn't obsess over the band and he does not try to figure out why she's wearing it. He doesn't try to figure out what it means. Mm -hmm. The most significant thing here in this version is that he does fall in love with her very quickly and becomes like obsessed with the idea of her to the point that he vows to be hers forever. And the next morning, he discovers that she's dead mm. and he calls the police and one of the officers who is just horrified explains that she had been beheaded the day before. Oh. Her head had been removed via guillotine. So she's a ghost. So she's a ghost or a corpse because she's lying there on his bed. Oh. Like she's still there. Yeah. So we don't really know what happened. The officer walks over, undoes the band from her neck and her head falls off. It's much worse for some reason. <laughs> it's creepier. So this is the first written version that we can find, that we know of, the earliest written version. Undoubtedly, there were versions told before this one, but this was written in 1824. Okay. I was about to ask when it's from. A mere 25 years after the French Revolution ended. Yeah. I mean, and so many people had had trauma related to a beheading, a guillotine. The next known written version is in a novel by Alexandre Dumas. Good job. It was published in 1850. It was called La Femme au Collier de Velours. The woman with the velvet collar? Necklace. Necklace. Very close. Oh, you almost had it. I almost yeah. did. This version is very similar to Irving's version. It also involves a young German male traveling to Paris during the height of the <laughs> Reign of Terror, mm -hmm. only to become utterly horrified by the guillotine itself yeah. and positively entranced by a mysterious young French woman, as well as a great deal of speculation regarding the man's mental state. So there's a lot of talk out there that maybe Dumas got his idea for this novel from Irving himself, but there's no proof. It's just as possible that Dumas heard the same version that right. Irving heard originally, thus inspiring their own separate versions of the same story. Yeah, that's kind of how possible. it works. Just different branches of the same tree. Mm -hmm. So the fact that one of the most famous ghost story motifs of all time came from the French Revolution is really no surprise. No. Uh, seeing how it was considered to be the most significant and most violent of the Western revolutions. Man. And let me tell you, there were a whole bunch yeah, of I mean, Western plenty. revolutions. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a little American one. So there's the French Revolution. But the reign of terror itself lasted less than a year. Yeah, it was a short time period. Something like 17,000 people were executed via guillotine mm -hmm. in less than a year. Oh. Now, there's a lot to the French Revolution, but I'm not going to get into that. I can't even break the surface of it because it's so much mm -hmm. and it's so complicated. So you're going to pick and pull out the most relevant pieces. Mm -hmm. Now, however, having said that, another very interesting interpretation of the metaphor of the hiding the scar around the neck, mm. the mark of where your head was cut off, is simply political, insinuating that you can never really know the political affiliation someone might have deep down underneath the guise they wear in public. Hmm. The removing of this fabric, this disguise, could reveal that you might secretly be worthy 
of the guillotine's blade. Wow. Mm. I'm also he- hearing a lot of a lot more COVID parallels. Ooh, interesting. Mask and such. Masks. Mm-hmm. F- the fabric reveals. Ooh, there should be a modern mask version yeah. of this. Oh, yes. You take off the mask and you find that you've got like, I don't know, syphilis? <laughs> What's an STD? There's lots of other things. Oh, my God. COVID taught me so much about people I know and their political affiliations that I just would not have assumed. Yeah. Um, or maybe would have some assumed in some cases, but. Imagine if there was a giant. Um, scaffold with a blade type mechanism that cut people's heads off that depending on which side of the mask ordinance you're on mm-hmm. you could be executed from one day to the other depending on which side you're on like just mm-hmm. just imagine that for a second that Man. you don't wear a mask so you're beheaded or you do wear a mask so you're beheaded wow it's really 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 complicated and a lot of people want to believe that they're persecuted to the point that that's what's going on but i digress Here's a little bit of guillotine history. Tell me about the guillotine. The act of beheading as a form of capital punishment was nothing new for the French Revolution. It'd been around for a long time. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that earlier versions of the guillotine specifically, it wasn't called that, but versions of it existed since like the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I can't fathom how poorly these work. Which almost makes it worse. I mean... It's much worse. Yeah. I mean, there are tons of medieval torture devices. Like, I've been to the Tower of London in, in London. Yeah. And seeing, like, those the museum... It's like a dream of mine. I've never been, but I, oh I have God. to go. I've toured the Tower of London, and it is just <laughs> unreal. Mm. Just, like, the drawing and quartering and the machines they would use to do that. These archaic ways that they would torture and... um punish people mm-hmm. physically mm-hmm. so yeah i can't like sorry i know i keep interrupting no, you on no. tangents like that but you're adding flavor you're just throwing those spices oh, that garlic that spicing onion it up. Mm, with a paprika yeah, mm. real spicy um but it is really kind of difficult it, it was like i didn't expect it to be hard on me really because it's history and you know you read about it in your textbooks whatever yeah when i was walking in that place knowing that people had been brutally killed you know by these means it changes things it's it's very difficult to like wrap your head around yeah for sure and even to want to yeah and yeah imagining a guillotine that doesn't work it means that the torture the pain lasts that much longer Mm -hmm. and when they weren't using a guillotine it was just like a sword or an axe Mm -hmm. or something that was just literally a person trying to like chop wood but it's your neck So it was never good to be killed. It was never good to be like capital punishment hasn't really had a lot of improvements. Um, that's why it's being outlawed uh-huh. in a lot of countries and a lot of states uh-huh. here in the U.S. Because how can you improve upon murder? I mean, it should be outlawed. Yeah. But man, it's better than it used to be. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. So because, you're saying you'd rather go by lethal injection than by guillotine? <laughs> well, no, no. I actually I want guillotine. You do? Okay, it's faster. If I have to go. By, like, court-mandated execution. Well, please don't ever do anything that's going to put us in that scenario, but... No, I will never... This is why I can say this and not, like... (laughs) This is why I can say this and get some sleep tonight. I think I'd rather be guillotined. Yeah? And now, after you've studied it, that's how you feel? I think so. Okay. Tell us why that is. The process was perfected during the French Revolution. And I say perfected because it's the closest thing to a perfect death I think we have. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get flack for that. That's just my opinion. That's your opinion. We're here to hear it. In European history, beheadings were typically reserved for the execution of criminals of noble birth. Mm -hmm. Criminals of lower class were typically hanged or drawn and quartered, Mm -hmm. disemboweled. These were all really terrible ways to die. Mm -hmm. Being beheaded was like... It was akin to being struck down in battle because it was always seen as a noble death, Hmm. right? Like for king and country, as they say. 
After the start of the revolution, a man named Joseph Ignis Gietin, I think that's how you say it, passed a law that said all executions should be carried out by, quote-unquote, means of a machine, uh-huh. which was supposed to be a more humanitarian approach. You give a human being that step back. Mm-hmm. You're not causing a human to kill another human by hand. Right. Yeah. It's Somehow that makes it okay. I don't know. Slightly better, I guess. Yeah. In these times. I don't don't endorse the guillotine. <laughs> don't endorse the guillotine. Yeah. No, not today, for sure. <laughs> and also, somehow this extended this uh, privileged execution to those of common birth. Mm-hmm. bringing equality to the masses, whether they liked it or not. Yeah. This is the one way there was equality in the 1700s. Having this law in place, the guillotine was invented by a French surgeon and physiologist named Antoine Louis. And it was first called the Louisette or Louison hmm. until it later became commonly known as the guillotine. And it has a bunch of names. Uh, but my favorite, as it became known in the French underworld, the widow. Yeah. Oh, which yeah. Which I think is very ominous and scary. Yeah. The two most prestigious people it killed was King Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. Yes. Which I think is kind of a fun parallel because their names, so King Louis and Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Interesting. Antoine Louis invented it. Mm-hmm. Pretty weird. That is weird. Pretty weird. Pretty weird. <laughs> would you say that's pretty weird? I would say it's pretty weird. But there's another vaguely familiar version of this that has to do with a you know young Frenchman meeting a young French woman in a Parisian cemetery, and she's wearing a red ribbon around her neck, and he's like immediately smitten with her. He's talking to her, mm-hmm. and by some action or another, he grabs hold of her like ribbon or scarf or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and, and pulls on it, pulling it from her neck, and her head falls off. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how old that version is, but I like it a lot. Yeah. I really do. I wish we knew. I wish we knew, like, the timeline. I know. I wish there was, like, a definitive, like, this was the first version. I think it was just spread around in certain circles. Yeah. We're at the halfway point, so this is our, uh, you know, the end of our part one. Oh, okay. Technically. These are our ponderings. Mm -hmm. So, to recap what we've talked about, just for kicks and giggles, Mm -hmm. this children's story that was published, when was this published? Alvin Schwartz published it in... 1984. 1984, that's right. We talked about it for Melissa. Mm-hmm. So Happy this birthday, children's Melissa. story from <laughs> <laughs> This children's story from 1984, it reaches back, so far we've learned, into the 1700s, but potentially further. 200... We just don't know. 250 years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I, for one, am excited to see where else this goes mm-hmm. and see what other feminist things I can find a way to bring up on the podcast. (laughs) I mean, we've barely gotten started. Thanks for joining us on this uh, ride that we've yet to see the end of. We'll see where it goes next week. Yeah. Thanks for stepping up onto the platform with us and uh, laying down your head. Yikes. Mm. (laughs) Hope you're getting all wintry and cozy this December. So everybody you see walking around with a scarf out there. Oh, you never know what might be hiding underneath. Yeah, maybe give it a tug, see what happens. Or don't, you know. Yeah, or don't do that. <laughs> anyway, cool, guys. See you next week. For the conclusion to The Green Ribbon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. 
Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.